I'm Adam Spencer, and in this episode of Challenger Chats, I'm joined by restaurateur, author, and presenter Nisha Katona. After a 20-year career as barrister, Nisha took a leap of faith, a massive career pivot, and threw her hat into the hospitality ring with the opening of her very first Mowgli restaurant in Liverpool. Mowgli is now one of the fastest growing restaurant brands in the UK, with a current stable of 18 sites across the country. Nisha is also a successful author of multiple best-selling recipe books. She sits on the government's hospitality council and has a blossoming broadcast career, having most recently joined the Great British Menu family as a judge on the upcoming series. In this chat, we touch on the origins of Mowgli as the ultimate democratic brand by allowing social media feedback to influence its direction. We discuss Nisha's fundraising journey and building a structure post-investment that allows CEOs and founders to thrive, and also how her recipes are so prescribed and specced that it's like creating paracetamol. So dial up the volume, kick back and enjoy. Nisha, it's great that you could join us on Challenger Chats. Welcome. It's a pleasure. Nice to be here. So before we talk about Mowgli the business, let's start with Nisha the person. And let's go right back to the formative years. Uh, Whereabouts did you grow up? Well, I was born and raised in a little northern working class town called Skelmersdale. So actually, I was born in Ormskirk. So that's Lancashire, really. And my parents came over to, in, uh, to England from India about, what, 1968? I was born in 1971. And they were came over as Asian GPs at a time when Enoch Powell was saying, come to England, we'd, we'd love to have some Indian doctors here. That was just before the Rivers of Blood speech, I think. And um, he uh, and so, yes, they came and worked as, as many Indian GPs did in those days in towns where basically no white doctor would want to work. And that's honestly, the, the, if you look at the population of Asian sort of GPs across the country that, you know, they came from these fairly difficult beginnings. So, yes, I was born and raised in that in that town. You know, some interesting memories of growing up in the 1970s as an Indian, I can tell you. And we were pretty much the only Indians in the village at that stage. Um, and then stayed pretty local. You know, I studied in Liverpool. I qualified as a barrister in Liverpool and worked there, you know, for 20 years. And my first, of course, Mowgli was in Liverpool. So apart from the year that I lived in London, I, you know, stayed pretty close to the area that I really love. I guess your parents needed to be entrepreneurial to, you know, by ne- by that by their nature coming over to a to a new country and um, and setting up a new life there. Did you have any siblings? Was there kind of you know competitive kind of rivalry there? Or <laughs> I have a brother who's five years older, and I to whom I'm extremely close, really really close. He's a doctor, and no, there was no rivalry. What I had was a very protective, affectionate big brother with all his pals. So I was quite like you know I sort of grew up as a tomboy, you know, riding on the on the back or front of a chopper in those days before the days of the BMX, you know, knocking and and running on people's doors. It was, you know, I I had a a very sort of boyish upbringing because of my sibling. No, we are so non-competitive, I think, as a family. And it is interesting, Adam, that you ask about entrepreneurism, because is that the sort of the same as resourcefulness? I'm not sure. So my parents were brave and they were resourceful. I think entrepreneurism requires something different in a way. And I think that's this whole point about spotting gaps in the market and, and, and bringing a, you know, bringing a business aspect into your life that I think is entrepreneurism. They, my parents have always been extremely frightened of business. And so it's just, I mean, it's semantics, isn't it? But it is very interesting what, what part of your brain that taps into, you know, being an immigrant. And my, my father was a very avid socialist in India. And the reason he moved over is because it was so corrupt. The medical system there was so corrupt. But at one point he was in prison for his socialism back in India. So I'm not sure that's entrepreneurism. I think that's fleeing and looking for a decent NHS to work in. Yeah. So, no, I, I grew up with nothing but disdain for business and was raised in that vein, you know, that business is something... Um, you know, where you must have your hands dirty, where you c- cannot possibly something be something that's conscionable. So we were raised to be doctors and to be lawyers at the very at the very worst. <laughs> so, so no, I don't come from a background of any kind of entrepreneurism in you know in, in the sense that we understand it. But did you come from a background with a with a love of food? Were you, were you a foodie from a young age? Completely, and I think that's very true of many many immigrants. It's one of the few things. You know, I, I you know my my father was a Hindu priest, and I go to church. You know, it's um. The, the religion will will die with me. Sari wearing is not something I do. I I'm trilingual, but my children will not be. So one of the few things that I can do, one of the few things that I can hold on to, are the flavours of, gosh, my ancestry. And what's so wonderful about Britain 
is that I think it's unique actually across you know you know in the world in the in how open minded it is to you know the the the, the culinary cultures from across the world and it might come from some dark proprietorial empire view whatever it is people here are more open minded about indian food about these really you know brazen cuisines like korean etc than than anywhere else that i know america couldn't do it europe couldn't do it um and so yes i was a massive foodie from the age of my earliest memories are of cooking from the age of four i was gutting and scaling fish that's what you do (laughs) i'm serious so yes it's always been a really big part of my life did some of that come through going back to india and visiting um, family there or yeah, so all of our holidays, you can imagine we didn't have any family here. So all, all of our family were over in India. And so every single holiday we would go, in fact, we'd take time out of school. We'd chuck sickies and we'd be in India a lot of the time. So lots of my formative, you know, we've got the ancestral homes there, are there. Of, you know, and it was, we had a sort of meagre existence out there. There was no real running water. There was no electricity. So those are my memories of India. Things are changing dramatically, but still, you know, come from a culture where, my grandmother's kitchen was a veranda with a hob on with 20 minutes worth of, you know, cow manure fuel. That's the crucible of Indian food. And from that stove with two pounds, she would conjure enough food to feed 10 people. So can you see why it makes such a brilliant business model? Really good. Home style Indian food is the way to feed the masses. Yeah. And did you have a sense that there was an opportunity there kind of as you were going through university, as you kind of entered into the legal profession? Did you think? Okay, well, the UK has yes, there there is you know that there's there's imports of you know a lot of flavors, a lot of cuisines. Obviously, Indian um, food in a certain form has been around in the UK for many many years. Did you feel that there was a there was a particular opportunity there, and that you just had a niche that needed to be scratched, or did it take you a while to kind of develop that thinking? No, far from it. I think you'll find with many many Indians. Um, you know, the curry houses, and they are great. And, you know, in many ways, we completely stand on the shoulders of them. What I really appreciate is their humility. What they don't represent is the way that Indians eat at home. So Indians don't go to curry houses. We had um, a couple of friends that had curry houses on Bowl Street, actually, in 1978. There was a place called Asha. And instead of going and eating in their restaurant, we'd go and meet the Asha family, but we'd eat upstairs in their kitchen where they cooked something that was entirely different. You see the, the irony of that. And so you are sort of slightly inured to that. Growing up as an Indian in this country, you just don't consider the curry houses as something that's even recognisable as your food. And and because um, there was, obviously they had this kind of, you know, this kind of cuisine had such a, you know, a hold on the high street nobody with our kind of food or I'm talking about like Mowgli kind of food which is you know predominantly you know plant-based you know fresh light healthy all of those things we I would never have thought that those things could have made headway into the market I thought if you think of the English audience you would want double cream condensed milk food coloring you know in in your in your food you'd want tikka masalas which don't even exist in India so no I and, and I tell you Adam this is really important actually I Looking at the industry, and this is why it's so I'm grateful to be on something like this. Looking at the industry, there are no role models. You know, you you know, you look at the hospitality industry, and it was it was sweary chefs who are brutalizing their own teams because they are perfectionists, and so that's seen as a you know completely legitimate reason to traduce the humans around you. This is not a place for you know anyone with anything other than a personality disorder, is it? You know what I mean? It was it's it's really alarming. So you you look at the you know you look at the restaurant industry, or you did when I when I was coming into it, thinking there is no one I can look at that I would aspire to be, or that would mean anything to me. Um, so yeah, there are many many reasons why there are. I think still there's lots of latent talent out there in the hands of probably women like me who are afraid of coming into the industry because you have to be what's seen as a ball breaker or some kind of a psychopath to run a kitchen and that's nonsense and that's why it's very important that you know at least there's another way of doing things do you think that comes from the individual personalities behind brands do you think you you need someone there a figurehead or you know, if you if you look at the brand, a lot of the brands on on the high street now and you speak to an average consumer you know they have no idea who who the personalities are that you know the entrepreneurs the founders of those businesses do you think that in this age of fast social media of personality and awareness of personalities do you think that the uk consumer is connecting the dots a bit more in terms of i like that person and so i want to go to their restaurant or do you think there's a little bit more to it 
Very, very interesting question because I'm sitting in this strange intersection between the world of media and the world of restaurateuring, actually. And I think what people have seen are chef, telly chefs, your Gordon Ramsay's, your Jamie's, your Harry Bikers, whoever they might have been, you know, the, the Floyds of the world. And that was the physical manifestation of the sort of dining industry in a way, uh, Marco Pierre White. Um, and then what happened is, and I still struggle with this, um, I look at the brands, you know, admirable brands like the Nando's, like the Wags. Like I'm talking about fast casual. I'm not just talking about somebody with two or three restaurants. I'm talking about what I am now in Moglia Chain. And there are very, apart from Colonel Sanders, who didn't exist, <laughs> Ronald McDonald, there are very few chains with actually, unless you can help me on that, I'm thinking of one with a face behind it. You know, we're now, you know, building our 18th restaurant. I'm talking about that scale as you get to that scale. Is there such a thing as a brand that still has a face? I, the thing is, I do all my own social media. All of Mergley's social media is me. And this interesting place that I'm in at the moment, which is media, which is actually being the face of a brand and, in fact, being the face of a chain. So far, it's it's working. And I can't think of – I'm trying to emulate someone. I know, you know, I, I love the Nandas of the world. So I, love, I have so much respect for the Wags and the Greggs and all of these things. But this is just different because I'm completely accountable. You know, they look to this human to find a voice for the brand and, um, you know, for good or for bad – and Mowgli's different in that way in that there is, it, it is personified in, in, in the form of me to an extent. And um, yeah, I, it's just a very interesting place to be. And we're early days and let's see how that pans out. So far, it's working because so far, you know, what I just share the journey, warts and all, the ups, the downs, my thoughts on the menu, my thoughts on designing every window. People then collaboratively build it with you and then they feel proprietorial. I think they really feel as though Mowgli is theirs. And in that way, you know, you get this loyalty, this real allegiance. And even when we fail, people stay with us because they feel that it's their fingerprint on on this brand, which is really incredible. Yeah, I agree. I think it gives you a, it gives a consumer, it gives a social media hunter a, a behind the scenes view and of of the business, but also it's it's that authenticity. It, you know, you, they're getting to see what's behind the scenes. So, yeah, and this will come on to a topic we'll talk about later around kind of ESG and provenance and people wanting to know where their food comes from. Now, I think that becomes you know a, a lot easier to do when you're kind of controlling that messaging. But also, it, it comes with it comes with risks when a personality or a person is becomes indistinguishable from the brand these be topics we kind of come on to later on but um coming back to your early career um you moved into uh, into legal profession what were you doing before Mowgli became i think she is today gosh day to day i was a child protection barrister so i was in you know court all day every day i was preparing briefs up to two in the morning so i certainly had the um stamina for a hospitality <laughs> in that way you know can I tell you actually hospitality is okay a cakewalk compared to being a full-time barrister honestly um in many many ways so it has been I don't feel I worked a day in my life as a barrister I really enjoyed it I thoroughly enjoyed it um but it was you were meeting you know people at the lowest point of their lives you were this was about child abuse this is all I did day in day out removing children from abusive parents or or defending you know perpetrators of abuse it doesn't get harder than that your head is full of monstrous things that you can't even share with anyone because you don't want them in their head as well you know i have so much respect for that that's that is so tough um emotionally um uh, you know be, be physically draining as well you know doing that for 20 years i mean that's, yeah uh, there's some resilience there talk about resilience <laughs> yeah. i'll give you that yeah. um uh, and, and so you know 20 years in um you know when did you come to the stage where you thought right this indian street kitchen idea it's got legs i'm going to go and do it what was the what was the trigger that kind of set you off down the path of opening the first mowgli yeah well i used to teach while i was a barrister because i'm obviously upset you know i i as i said from the age of 10 i was asking for pans for my um christmas presents so i used to teach indian cookery i realized very early on that there is a very simple formula around Indian cooking. I think most Indians would have you believe that Indian cooking is this dark art that is DNA born and you couldn't possibly learn it unless you can speak five languages, um, which is nonsense because in fact there are very beautifully simple virtuosic spice formulas around all the dishes and based around three spices. I became so passionate about this that 
while I was still a barrister at the weekends, I used to teach Indian cooking. So pretty much every barrister and judge in, in Liverpool can, can cook great curries because we'd have. And then and, and what would happen is they'd come over, of course, and do the classes. And, and they were really addicted to the dishes that they were cooking. And I thought, my gosh. And I think I always describe entrepreneurism as almost like psoriasis. You know, it's just something that you pick up. It, it, it gets you and then, you you know, it will it will cause this itch, as you described it earlier, that needs scratching. It is an entirely involuntary thing. And I realized, I think, then that there was a gap in the market. This food was not represented on the streets. People loved it. I know that I, in my 50 years of life, hadn't tired of it. So, nor had my ancestors, but, you know, hundreds of years. So maybe, maybe, maybe there was a product here that filled a gap in the market. And once that thought came to me, I was the most reluctant, most reluctant entrepreneur. I was supposed to go on and, you know, do my judging exams to become a judge. And the last thing I wanted to do was to build a curry house. But for all the reasons I've just said, you know, there was no there was no playbook for someone like me. I had a great career with a great salary. You know, it's not cheap to build a restaurant. I had response. I had two young children married to a guitarist. You know, <laughs> I had to keep my hand Absolutely. to the plough completely. So, um, yeah, that that was a really... A difficult time because I remember vividly waking from my sleep with almost as though this this thing was animated and pulling up my sleeve even at night saying pleading for me to just give it a go and I felt that it got to the point where it would have been cowardice not to isn't that strange I became my own worst enemy in a way really strange really strange why Mowgli did the name come before the idea or I, I'm intrigued by the um, by the backstory to Mowgli it is, it is intriguing because everything about building, what's so beautiful about entrepreneurism to build a widget that nobody's built before. So this was this widget. I could give it any name, give it any color, any face, any design. So I was really excited about naming this. And I, I realized very early on, sorry, even when I was thinking about what menu to put on, that it was a lonely place to build a bill. You know, everyone around me thought I was just going mad. You know, as I said, we come from this background where business is seen as a dreadful thing. Restaurants are, you know, what is that? It's not even a job, you know, in, in the, my parents' point of view. So um, I started a Facebook page and I put the menu out saying, look, if I served food like this with these prices, would you buy it? And very slowly, people started to follow me and interact. And I put three names out to the public. One was um, Mongoose, one was Rickshaw, and one was Mowgli. Mowgli is a pet name that I have for myself. So my language is Bengali. Um, and that's Rudyard Kipling, of course, took that from um, from our language. <laughs> and Mowgli is just the name for a feral child. So that was my pet name for my own children. I put three. I really wanted Mongoose. And it was the public that had started to follow this restaurant story that chose Mowgli again against my wishes. But I put it out there, so I went with it. And and that's where Mowgli came from. Isn't that interesting? It's my pet name. And the interesting thing, and thank God they did, you know, these things happen for a reason, because because it's the name of my children, my children feel such a love for this business I can't tell you you know I let them choose the the moniker which is the monkey so they design the monkey they name some of the dishes as a result because you have investment from those little sort of ankle snappers around you there is no discord at home Mowgli sits in our house as though it's a third child she's pretty much all we talk about all we think about and it helps when your own family adore her in 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 the way that I do you know it's not business there is no veil between business and this truly this thing that is truly a part of the family very interesting yeah and I've, I've just picked up there you 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 know you refer to Mowgli as a as a she is that something you you've always done since the idea kind of came I think honestly it, I, I, it's really interesting. I, I've got two daughters so I think you know this sort of slightly maternal language it must you know manifest in me calling things she um and it must be honestly Adam it's like adopting a child it's like a you know taking on a child that is that is extremely demanding and so my that's what snags on my sort of linguistic DNA is that she, it's very, she is very real to me. And um, what I think is very fascinating about her, this thing, this thing that we've created in Mowgli, is that it's almost as though she has her own personality. She's, it's bigger than me. It is, it's got a better mind than me. It's bigger than me. It will march on ahead of me. You know what I mean? It will leave me behind at some point and good on her, just in the way that my own teenagers are and will. Um, I, I do feel that that's the right thing. 
yeah that, that's a great way to think about your business you know to to a lot of entrepreneurs particularly you know um entrepreneurs that have started up multiple businesses businesses tend to be quite transactional it's a it's a means to an end whereas it feels like Mowgli is, is more than just that <laughs> to you the way that you've described it over the last kind of 10 minutes or so that actually you know there's there's real kind of passion and attachment there to to seeing um seeing this business grow and develop into something something much bigger yeah, something that would, it's, you know, this is it. This is my maturity as a parent as well, in a way, because it's about fledging her. You know, she's fledging, she's fledged. It, it, it's about, because I will die one day and she needs to carry on marching across the globe. Honestly, I love this business. I think she's got such magnificent um, legs. <laughs> you know, she can, I do, there's nowhere she couldn't go. And so I just need to set her up with the right spirit as you do with your own, you know, uh, those around you. And there will come a point, you know, I'm in and I'm in for as long as I can see in a certain role, but I'm not, I can't be precious about that. It doesn't help anyone really. You know, I'm finite then my brain's only so big. Um, so yes, I, I, and you know, that maturity as a parent is also my maturity as a CEO and as a founder as well, is that, you know, it's, it doesn't do to be too tenacious, but it does do to run everything through your moral right now, my moral lens, because that moral lens has worked. Going back to the first site, then what was the reaction from your friends and family of you leaving your successful bar career to to becoming a, a restauranter? Um, I think most of them thought. I remember I used to get these phone calls from India saying, "You will destroy our family if you do this." I remember my family even now can't bring themselves to ask me how my restaurants are. They ring from India and say, "How is your hotel?" Because that gives it some dignity. They they would rather think I gave up being this, you know, a barrister for running hotels because that's the bigger thing on the Monopoly board, isn't it? <laughs> so it, it's crazy, isn't it? So is, they, is that disappointing for you to hear that? No, it's hilarious, isn't it? No disappointment at all. Why? Why? <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, dri- I'm driving my dream Volvo. Why would I be disappointed? <laughs> so what am I disappointed? I don't feel like that. You know, the thing is, I completely get that. It's crazy. My own daughter, I was asking what she wanted to do, whatever. And she said, well, why can't I do what you do? And I really was mortified. I thought, no bloody way. <laughs> and that's I'm going me. to speak to your family back in India. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go and speak to your family. Exactly. <laughs> that's the enlightenment completely passed me by as well. There's doctors and lawyers out there. You could be one of those. It's ridiculous, isn't it? So I, who am I to judge? You know, what they care about, and this is very sweet, and you are raised like this, and this is why I became a barrister, my brother, a doctor, because you are raised to believe that unless you work harder than everyone around you and you contribute so much, and unless you're in one of these ex- exceedingly noble professions you will fall off the face of England and that's what they think back in India and that's fine they're just wanting what's best for us little do they understand the hospitality scene here and the way it is honestly because the best restaurants are in hotels in India still um it's just a different model as it was here I remember in the 1970s you know going you know your best meals were in the you know Prince of Wales hotel in Southport or whatever um so it's fine they 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 We'll get it. They certainly know more about food than I ever will. So <laughs> might to judge them. Say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and how did you fund the business in the early days? So were you, were you doing things alone, or did did you have help and support from others? No, 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 completely alone. Not even my bank would lend to me. You know, not West in those days. Oh my God! You know, just thought um, I was having a midlife crisis. They lent me enough to buy a grill you know having banked with them for 20 years with exemplary barristerial records it is interesting you know that that you go and I remember being in the in the waiting area to go and see this business whatever manager one woman amongst you know 10 men in all their sort of sharp suits with those kind of long brown shoes that they wear um and yeah it was it was crazy um so no, no help at all. We risked everything. We were going to have to move into my auntie's bungalow. I remember my brother lending me enough to, I used all my savings, everything, uh, the, roof, the roof over my head, really, honestly. And still, and still my skin is 100% in the game with Mowgli completely. So, And that's, that's another trait of entrepreneurs that, that we, we see consistently. It's risking it all and making life-changing decisions that if they go wrong are going to leave leave you in a very difficult position um and i think you're know, getting to that stage it, it takes a certain kind of you know 
takes a certain personality or being in a certain kind of frame of mind to be able to make that kind of call. Um, and clearly, you know, you made the right call. You, know, you opened up your, your first site in, in, uh, in Liverpool and in Bold Street. How, how did the first year of trading go? It was extraordinary. Not just the first year, the first week of trading. Remember, I, I, remember I said that I sort of built this, you know, in conjunction with social media. So I, I started this page. And honestly, people, I think there are a seam of humans like me that were of my age, my stage of life, where children were sort of empty nesting, and they were vicariously living out this tale. And I do, you know, you you watch these entrepreneurs, I still am smitten with these entrepreneurial programs, you know what I mean, that you build it and they will come, which is absolute bollocks, if I may say so. But (laughs) that kind of thing, you know, still... um, I still find it fascinating, the entrepreneurial spirit. I, nothing excites me more than speaking to people that have got a business idea. And you see it in their eye. They flush in their face. And um, all of those sort of people that, that followed the journey, that, you know, that, that followed the journey, were queuing around the block. First week of trading, honestly. And the queues didn't stop. So the queues haven't stopped. So there was never a difficult time. It's really interesting. The difficult time was all sort of front-loading this, was building it, was the taking the risk, was you know, living, you know, out of, you know, the little if we could and eating in a, um, the only time I saw, you know, my family was when they came to the building site. That And I was doing two jobs. I was a barrister and I was built, physically built my own restaurant, you know, myself with a, with a guy with a spanner. You know, that that was a tough time. But then the, um, the bounty flowed and that's incredible. And I still am shocked at how people still queue for Mogi. It's amazing. Um, you can't take that for granted. You know, you're only as good as your last curry. So yes, the first year was incredible. A year on from that, I then built my second Mowgli in Manchester. And then the year after that, I came back and built a bigger Mowgli in Liverpool because we were beginning to annoy people because we were too small. And it kind of went like that. It was kind of, and the way I built is that whatever Mowgli made, honestly, I you know, I earned far more as a barrister than I ever did as a CEO of restaurants. You know what I mean? Um, whatever Mowgli made, it went back into Mowgli. I just put the money straight back into Mowgli. We were still shopping. We went up to the Aldi, I think, from the Lidl. You know, but that's how I built her. You know, um, I just built her on my own with um, with my own cash. Um, but I met a fantastic person early on in my journey, a guy called Peter Richards, who was the development director for McDonald's. And he came to eat in Mowgli and he... Um, started chatting to me about, he loved it. And he just said, do you realize you're sitting on the brand here? This was about, you know, this was early on in the first Mowgli. And he began, of course, I had disdain for that. It was McDonald's. How, you know, all of that naive nonsense that people can have about brands as, as phenomenal as that. And he taught me really an awful lot about, um, you know, this, the business about consistency, about making things just completely, you know, every modular you build this in a modular way it doesn't detract from any of the essence of Mowgli and um very early on he became a very small minority investor and it was honestly so wonderful just to have another human because there was no one so this would be about a year and a half in another human that I could talk to that had been there that had seen what it is to you know have a business go through peaks and troughs it, just having people around the table is the most important thing how was it kind of building your first team um, uh, or kind of you know, starting to build in the, the structure around your, your team in Mowgli? Um, did you, was it a new kind of experience for you? And what were the kind of leadership lessons you learned kind of in the early stage as you were scaling up from kind of one to one to three, four sites? Yeah, it's a good question because as a barrister, you are self-employed. You don't employ anyone. You have one clerk between 40 barristers, you know, so there's no concept of what it is to employ someone. A, to employ someone. B, to have been an employee. I have never been an employee. So what must that feel like? And I think in that has, um, in that lies a great deal of um, liberty in a way, because the closest I have to having dependents is having children, honestly. And so what I've done is built Mowgli as though I was building it for my, you know, I, the, I want my workers to feel as happy as my children do at home. It's really important. And I haven't strayed from that and it's worked so far. The, the structure, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what's my best leadership lesson early on is honestly to hire into those areas that you don't like doing. I never like sacking anyone. I hate, I really not, I've not got a passion for the finances at all, which bores me with this. So I know 
what I need to be doing and I know the numbers, but it's not where I get excited. You know, I get excited about it. So I very, very quickly, while I was building my first Moby, I hired in a GM. I don't know how to write a rotor. I never want to know how to write a rotor. I want to know that they're fair and I want to know that my people are happy and they're not overworked and all of that. But writing a rotor, working the tills, uh uh-uh. You know, so that hired a GM in. And he was a GM that came from Living Ventures. They're very well trained. Very thank you, Tim Tim Bacon, for that. But you know, came came with this great training, and built the team up. Sort of, you know, assistant GM servers. How many we need at certain times? Bar staff, all of that. Um, I hired a um, head chef who I trained. So this is the most important thing. I'm all, you know, I am the exec chef of Mowgli. I train my chefs. So my head chefs, my trainer chefs, my operation chefs, I train them in my sort of neurological culinary way of thinking. So they cook like my grandparents and they don't stray from that. And they're local. They are scousers. They are Brits. They are not, I'm not, I don't on principle, I don't find chefs. I don't want chefs who can cook curry, who have it in their culture, who can cook it because it's very, very difficult for them to put that aside and not meddle with my recipes. Mowgli's recipes are so prescribed and so specced, it's like creating paracetamol, I tell them. So I need that kind of humility. And I, I tell you, that's one of the best things about um, building Mowgli. And one of the reasons I think Indian chains have not really taken off because this dependence on, an, you know, having a... Um, needing to have an Indian workforce to cook your dishes, I think that's the most terrifying thing to think that you need to to hire from one race for your business model to work, I think is folly and I think it's terrifying. <laughs> and that's why I think the most important thing is that very, very, the, before I even hired anyone, I took, you know, an English guy, treated and teach him how to taught all the rest of my chefs how to make the curry. And then, you can, you know, hiring is easy. We can go to any town. We don't have to go to a town where there's a massive Asian population. We go anywhere and we create 60 jobs wherever we go, you know, 80 jobs wherever we go. And I think that's been possibly the, the biggest, um, thank you, thank God, the lifesaver. But that's what I did for, you know, I taught Indian food all my life. So to me, that's second nature and it worked. Yeah, of course, yeah. Cool. And um, and how large was the business when you when you raised your growth capital funding round? Oh gosh, I think we were about three and a bit size. What were we doing? We did Manchester, Liverpool, Liverpool, Manchester. I think I may have just about taken Birmingham. So we weren't big. Okay, so yeah, pr- pretty early on then. Pretty um, early on, yeah. And and what was your kind of decision making process around like for you know, around that like? You know, did you did you go out um, thinking now's the right time we need to we need to accelerate growth or was it uh, w- were there other factors at play? Tell you what's interesting about that. I you, you you know if you're just building on your own and you're building a small business, you know seven eight restaurants, six seven eight nine restaurants. So I'm sorry, I'm calling that a small business, but that's a lovely business, you know. Um, you probably don't need investors uh, around the table. If you come from a business background, you probably don't need investors. Mowgli didn't need money at that point. I honestly wanted people around the table. I know, I think my strength is, is that I know what my weaknesses are, you know, and I, to do this properly, and even, I think then, I think by the time I was sort of getting Birmingham, I was thinking, my gosh, we could do this. This could be national. And it was at that point when, of course, I quite relished the bit in my mouth, you know what I mean? I quite relished having... Yeah, because, you know, there are people that have done this that know better. And it was that chair figure that I wanted. It was the Karen Jones um, figure that that I wanted and that, that I was looking for and the investment brought as well as having, you know, as well as bringing some cash. So you've got breathing space and you've got security. But at that point, Mowgli didn't need the money. What I needed was those heads around the table that I've thoroughly enjoyed having around the table, you know. Um, so that was the motivation. And so for you, it wasn't it wasn't just about you know the terms and driving the highest price and the least dilution. It was more around you know the uh, the other elements of um, support for you and um, you know support for the business that the growth capital kind of brings along with it than the, actually the cash itself. Um, here's the thing, um, and, and this is the wonderful thing, is because I didn't need it, remember what I was looking for was that friend around the table. Because I didn't need it, honestly, I was looking for all three of those elements. Honestly, because I didn't need it. <laughs> you can. It's not as a, you know, I, why, why not have a great price? Why not, you know, dilute to the state you want to dilute to? Why not 
um, get, you know, all of those things, have somebody around the table that is ad item with you that has the same business mind, the same business heart, actually reach for all three. And that I think is the most important thing is going out to the market when you need it is one of the most lethal things. That's when you start having to make concessions. But going out to the market when you are on a high, when you thoroughly enjoyed the journey that you're on, and that it's just gravy. <laughs> it's a great place to be because you can you can look for all three of those things. You you want as a CEO and your investors want you to be completely content with no resentment, with no feeling shackled or feeling that their wings have been clipped in any kind of an unconscionable way. And so you've got to really think about, well, what do we want from this deal? What do I want from this relationship? And go for all of it, really. Otherwise, because if you go into it and then you you, you um languish and discontent in any in any form it's not good for anyone it's not good for the investors it's not good for the business so honestly i would shoot for the stars really bringing on board your first institutional investor is probably one of the most important decisions that you can make as a founder um probably maybe even more so than the eventual exit you know you 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 get that first investor decision wrong and it can really set things back and sour relationships are really not the most conducive way to be driving a business forward but you get it right, and it, it's just as you say it kind of sets the tone for the for the next accelerated you know, phase of growth, um, and keeps people focused on the right areas and the areas that they are adding the most value in. So um, yeah, to- totally uh, totally agree with your approach there. Good to yeah, no, but it's good. I mean, obviously you're Tamil, aren't you? And it's great, and I do think you really do. You, you at Tamil really do appreciate and understand that. But because uh, it's so profound, Adam, you know, because if you've got a happy CEO, if you've got a happy founder. The amount of energy, I don't sleep. There's no one that works harder for Mowgli than I, and nobody ever will because I, do, I work till two in the morning and I get up at eight the next morning and I've, all I do is Mowgli. I've never had a day off in my life and it is my pleasure to do that. And that's because I'm a happy co-investor. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So you are right. Nobody could, nobody could inject this business with the energy that I do right now because, you know, and you're right, it's finding that, that partnership that actually gives you and continues your zeal, you know. And also that, that's a lesson for any, any um, PE listeners <laughs> out there, institutional funders out there. Uh, keep your CEOs happy. So you raise this money and now there's not just you, but there's serious institutional capital around the board table. There are investors who have their own investors who are expecting to see growth. So what was it like having raised this money tied to these expectations that you really need to go at growth now um, and having that additional? Did you feel like it was additional pressure? No, you go into the you go into the prenup, don't you? With the set, you know, discussing well, at what pace are we thinking? And I was always very clear, you know, the pace would be about four or five a year, four a year, maybe. You know what I mean? And I was excited about that. You don't find an investor like you know, you, you you don't go out there looking for an investor that wants to grow at a different pace to, to the pace that you envisage. You know, there might be a little bit of a stretch. It might have been that I wanted to do three, and it might have been said, you know, it might have been suggested. What about four? What about four? And four's fine. Four's fine, especially when you got someone else around the table. You know what I mean? So that was my position then. So there really need to be no surprises you know it's kind of business as usual to, once you've got those investors around the table it's just more collaborative I remember our first board meeting I think we were barefoot in my house with loads of curry down the table and it was always that way Do you know you are there with your pals building something you adore at the pace that you all have agreed prior to very little discord actually because that that's the whole point I think about you know the matchmaking part is that you meet meet and 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 air all of it. What is your vision? You know, look at what kind of people these people, you know, the people that are going to be sharing that table with you are, you know, are they the Wolf of Wall Street kinds or, you know, the Joni Mitchell kinds or whatever. I remember Karen Jones coming for, for whatever the interview, you know, to see if she's going to be my chair. And I remember her telling me how much she loved Pink Floyd and I thought, you're in. That's it. <laughs> that will do. Yeah. So it's crazy, isn't it? You've got, you, yeah, it's finding people at the same mind so that you don't have those, those, um, those, you know frightening alarming you know discussions and elbowing you into you know areas of discomfort once you get there but i guess you know there, there is an argument to say that you know a little bit of tension is healthy you know it allows people to think about a different angle different points of view has it all been nice and conflict friendly or you know have there been you know disagreements that you know you've had to find a way through i think this is um where having a good chair really matters because and i think having humility on on you as a part of the founder as well you know the reason I hired that chair in is because she's lived this life before me and has kind of seen what's worked and not worked and so to have that arbiter so I tell you like you know about yes I think probably after Oxford 
I was going to do London and I found a site in London and I love this site and Adam it was this site and I always I choose every site you see and it was my gut this I could see this being a mogul and I remember ringing Karen and saying I really want this site and her very cleverly saying listen love if you want it you can have it well then you you know I'm eating out of your hand once you say that to me <laughs> if you want it you can have it but there's, there was a lot of movement in the market. Just hang on, because I think there's going to be something. You know, just she counseled me against it. And I found that it was the big moment where I wanted something and it was suggested that the board didn't. And I was pleased with myself for how well I just instantly took that. I just thought, you know what, this is what I've hired you for. You're right. And then I think, God, am I being a bit lily livid here? But it was right. You know, my spit, it sounds like a crazy thing, but you know, like, the, you know, your force, your Star Wars phraseology, you know, your force was not disturbed. My spirit was not disturbed. As she was saying, she was uh, announcing her dissenting view. It felt right and my gut said listen to her and the sh- this weight came over my shoulders and I have to say that's always been the case so when there is a uh, disagreement um gosh it's ne- it's never really that sort of visceral I don't come away from a meeting jangling and I think that's what would give me an ulcer and that's what would stop me wanting to to grow or make you stop wanting to be CEOs if you came away from those board meetings jangling with anxiety because you feel thwarted. It's never happened, which is great. You know, I think I know how to work. It comes from being a lawyer as well. I mean, you just, you know, you're coming to decision. You negotiate. This is what you do for a living. You negotiate. You be sensible, circumspect. You, you know which battles to fight. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And and how is your, how have you found that your role at Mowgli has evolved since uh, since Foresight and since Karen came on board? Well, it's what's beautiful about Mowgli is she works on three, four very easy pillars. You know, there's financials, there's people, product, um, place, and I sit over all of them. So, you know, I come up with a people strategy. I design, you know, that I'm the designer of the Mowgli physical restaurants and I'm the exec chef. And so I have, and, and of course, over the financials, and I have these direct reports that come to me on those points, and it is clean and neat and lean. And then under those, you get this sort of burgeoning umbrella of, you know, the estates department, you know, the operations department, all of that. Um, but I think what has happened, so whereas before it was, you know, everyone sort of reporting to me, um, you know, I've just got this handful of direct reports, and it is, you know, with I can make a decision at two o'clock, and it's done across all restaurants by four o'clock, and it's just so non-frustrating so fantastic and so slick and quick and easy and all of those things yeah do you think that the social media um presence um and and the weighting that social media has on your marketing um in the long term uh you know, helps with um the the longevity of the brand do you see that you have a better uh means in which you can keep the brand relevant and fresh because of the social media presence hundred uh, percent. Social. I, I built this brand on social media. There, we don't have marketing. We don't have PR. We've never done an advert. It is all, you know, social media. And, and what's so wonderful? It's every aspect of Mogi that people are interested in. You know, what's incredible is that um, about a year ago, some of our customers started to leave notes on napkins for our team members saying thank you for the service, amazing dishes, and. I put those on social media and they've got their own hashtag now called napkin love. They become their own phenomenon. We are now inundated and it's amazing because you can hang these napkins on the pass and it edifies the, the, the chefs as they're working. And, you know, so I, we can learn so much from those people out on so, social media. Is a love, my experience is it's been a lovely place. It's been an incredible place that has helped me build this business far more relevantly than any humans could have been, you know, inspired me to. It's incredible because it's instant feedback. I respond to every single tweet. I respond to every single comment. And I have made so many changes to Mowgli because of, you know, of suggestions that have been made because we, we build this for the people. The people eat there and we build it for the people and it works in a beautiful circle in that way. It's, it's the ultimate de- democracy, the business built for the people by the people. It tr- it tr- honestly, I tr- it's not even trite. You are absolutely right, but it is. Because I remember there were some dishes that weren't selling. So I went out to social media and said, why, why are you not buying my cabbage tangle? And they wrote back saying, why would we buy anything with the word cabbage in it? <laughs> This is England. <laughs> so I change it to, you know, to, 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 you know, to tangle greens and suddenly the sales go up. So why would I not listen to them? You know, it actually hits the bottom line. It's, it's a benefit to both of us. Yeah. I know we're getting short of time. And what I want to do before, before we leave is, uh, is to go through our quick fire round. 
Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Liverpool or London? Oh, yeah, Easy. that is such That's a terrible. bad question. Okay, yeah, terrible. What are you thinking? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, okay, what was the last book you've read in full? Uh, Hamlet by Maggie O'Farrell about, yeah, Shakespeare. Fantastic. Red chilies or green chilies? Always green. Always green. 2019 or 2022? Was 19 the lockdown year? No, it was before lockdown. Mm, 22 then. 22. Let's go 22. Um, person you most admire in the world of business? The person that I really still love dearly is Tim Bacon, you know, because he taught me that you can use the language of love and real love and affection unashamedly. I'm not talking about, you know, in, in a utri way, I'm talking about real love. And so I really admire him for that. And I'm grateful. Uh, he had such an impact on a lot of people. Um, uh, uh, so unwinding over a cup of coffee or a glass of wine? I'm a coffee person. I've seen, I think, more more families destroyed by wine than heroin in my last job. And so I'm coffee. Yeah. You're trapped on a desert island. You can bring three items with you, but not your family. What would they be? Dear God. OK, so here we go. I'd probably bring um, all of Leonard Cohen's music, chicken and mushroom pot noodles and cracked heel cream, I think. I think I think sand can play havoc with your feet. I wouldn't have thought of that. It's not very romantic, is it? I've just thought about it. I haven't read that. I haven't seen that question before, but that, that's what came to my mind. Wow, wow. You, you, clearly somewhere you've been thinking. <laughs> There's the nothing classy life. there, no, is there? Yeah. The pot noodles, are, I love it. Yeah, <laughs> um, so, and finally, your, your favourite item on Mowgli's menu? Got to be the chat bombs. I opened Mowgli because of the chat bombs. So, yes, absolutely. Excellent. Thank you. So um, this, this, actually, this next question is kind of quick fire. What would you like to be best known for? Nisha, the restaurateur, Nisha, the TV chef, or Nisha, the bringer of Indian cuisine into your homes? Um, it's a restaurateur, really, because what I love is being able to, it's being, I've never created jobs before. I've never paid this much tax before. And of both of those things, I am very proud, honestly. And uh, talk about tax. Uh, this, my next question is about the government. So you've uh, recently appoint, been appointed to the government's Hospitality Council. Can you tell us a bit, bit about the work you're, you're doing there? I know it's early days, but um, what's, the, what's, what's the vision? What, what are you trying to achieve from the council? Oh, gosh, it's such a great vision. Do you know, I, I went into that with, with such scepticism. Um, but what they want to do, what, you know, what we want to do as a council is to build a financially stable, dynamic, innovative green sector that supports jobs, vibrant communities and creates places where people want to work and live and visit and um, all of those bits all of those bits are what we as restaurateurs want to do all day every day it is such a great space for us to get together and actually you know the fact that government deign i shouldn't even say deign to listen to us but they they do appear to be listening with their heart they do want to do what's best for us i think what we're up against is medics we're up against science we're up against this virus and all of those things but what we have i think are the you know treasury really wants to support this set. I have been really pleasantly surprised. You know, and at the heart of this is things like, you know, it's environmental sustainability, innovation, investment, community well-being. These are the things we talk about. And, you know, you may ask, does it make a difference? The fact that we are airing it and talking about it, the fact that we as business leaders are being forced to tackle those issues, to think about what we're doing to make that, that space better. It's good for all of us. It really is. They could just not have had one. And they have. And I'm grateful. I mean, I mean, skeptics might say that, you know, this is just another government talking shop. Do you, do you think that, you know, they will in time listen to and, and act on recommendations and, and advice? Well, I think they already have. I think there's been a number of times where, you know, we put things to, you know, they, they you know, they want to keep they wanted to keep the country open. They want to keep the country open. They need the coffers to be filled and for the cash to flow and the jobs to be retained and all of those things we're pulling in the same direction honestly um so so it's not as though there's been a great deal of discord i i think they listen and i i say it again they could have just not had one do you know what i mean they don't need to have these talking shops <laughs> certainly not with us you know that you've got parliamentary debate you've got all of that you've got representation of the nation in, you know to, into into government they don't need these kind of you know separate um tables coming together and discussing things so Again, it's it's they they've gone further than we'd you know we we, we could have anticipated, and I, I you know yeah I do appreciate it. And um, I, I know you don't get much sleep, but um, what what if anything keeps you up at night? 
Um, if I think about things like pensions, I, it keeps me up at night because my husband loves pensions. I hate them. Um, you know, just thinking about that sort of slightly few. I tell you what, I'm so in the moment, I think, that thinking about future planning, thinking about the time of, you know, what, what will I do when I, sorry, financially, what will I do when I retire and all of that. Um, as a barrister, that's what you think about. So what you do as a barrister is you become a judge because you get a, pen, a pension. So for 20 years, I have had this life plan where I become a judge and have this nice sleepy existence. And, you know, um, it, it, but Mowgli has, has taken up my life at such a pace that I haven't had time really to think of the future in that way. And that keeps me awake. I, I need to really start thinking about that and stop loathing pensions quite as much as I do. Perhaps, I don't know. But that, yeah, even now I'm beginning to get a knot in my stomach <laughs> to think about, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I was expecting you to say COVID, so I'm, I'm glad you came no, up not COVID different. has not, le- I haven't lost one night's sleep over COVID. Isn't that interesting? Not a one night, yeah. There's a certain resignation when you come to COVID, mm-hmm. isn't there? So, yeah. 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 Um, what are you most proud of um, in, in your career? Honestly, creating jobs. It's... Uh, I can't tell you coming from a self-employed, you know, completely self-employed background um, where, you know, my contribution to community, to, to, to society was, you know, through you know, defending whatever, um, the indefensible or whatever, you know, you know, child protection, protection of children. Um, this is very, very different. You see the difference that you make to those. And it's not just that it's creating jobs, but giving people a place to work that is often nicer than their own home. That is the that I'm never going to tire of that. I'm just never going to tire. It's always a joy to go into work, and these people that work for me, I couldn't get a job in Mowgli. They are magnificent, and they deserve to feel better than home from home when we get there. So, sort of spoiling our teens is is something that um, has been a joy. It's the thing I'm most proud of, honestly. And and what's the single most important piece of advice you'd give to someone considering rolling the dice, changing career, and diving into the world of entrepreneurship? that the world doesn't owe you a living don't for a second think that it's going to succeed you have to think about whether there is a gap in the market that you can uniquely fill with your skill or passion uniquely with your skill or passion and is there a gap only when those three things align can you would i suggest honestly that you let go of your former rope and swing to the other one you know keep hold of that rope don't go out there thinking that it's going to work try it you know, try it, gain your footing and then swing fully to that second, uh, second life only when you know you can meet your responsibilities. And finally, when you sit back in years to come and you look out over your front porch or, or your yacht or <laughs> however you want to retire, how, how will you judge if you've had a successful career? I think I will judge that by how, whether my family is intact and not too broken, honestly. Um, people come to work for me because out of choice, but my children didn't choose to be born. My parents, my family, my, you know, my husband, not, none of my family chose to suddenly have this woman become this thing, doing this thing, you know, with all my time tied up. And I think if I can look at, you know, two children that are content, you know, and I'm still married and, you know, that those I love around me are not damaged by what I've done with Mowgli because I know the people in Mowgli aren't, then that would have been a success. What a note to finish on. Nisha, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to any of our channels, drop us a line, or follow Tamriel Capital on LinkedIn, where you can carry on the conversation and engage on all things leisure, hospitality, wellness, consumer, and challenger. Thanks for listening. <laughs>